Now, I know we have a number of uh, fathers in here with uh, precious little girls. And I want to say I pray for all those fathers because I know that one day all those precious little girls are going to become something else. They're going to become teenagers. And I don't know what they're going to have invented 10 or 15 years from now to distract teenagers and to upset fathers. But I know when I was a father, we started hearing this, when I had teenage girls, I started hearing this chatter around the dinner table about these things called likes and follows and, and bragging about uh, how many, um, how, how many people were, were watching them on, on the Instagram and the Facebook and things like that. And, and, uh, and I, I couldn't figure out what it was at first, but, but, but uh, you know, then come to find out that these kids are living these virtual lives with these virtual friends on this virtual medium where, where these virtual likes and these, vir these virtual followers are, are keeping track of one another and it's become a way of keeping score. And I was thinking about that this week when I was looking at this passage because what this passage shows us is that everything old is new again. It's simply similar to what the Pharisees, the very religious people in a very religious age, would do when they practiced their religion. As Jesus says, sometimes they would want to give a generous gift to the poor, but they would announce it with trumpets so that everyone knew they were giving generously. And other times they, they would uh, want to pray, but they turn their prayers into sort of performance art and stand on street corners. I think, you know, you, you go to New York City today, you can find people like this, you know, who are performing on street corners in various ways to try to catch the attention of people. But really, technology doesn't create new impulses, but sometimes what it does is it gives rocket fuel to ancient impulses and eternal impulses in our soul, like our need for attention, our need for followers, our need for likes, our need for views and things like that. And, uh, you know, so the internet doesn't, didn't create that, that desire for attention, it just, it just extended it. Now, you know, with a click of a button, you can go worldwide and have friends all over the, all over the globe, potentially. And, uh, you know, there's different forms of this. There's, there's a, there is certainly a pathological form of, of attention-seeking that grasps a lot of people and that, that the Pharisees were guilty of and that some people who use Facebook and Instagram are guilty of. And, and the, the, at, a, at its extreme form, it can become something that is dangerous. There was an article in Vice News with the headline, People are literally dying for the perfect Instagram picture. And it read this, all around the world, selfies and photo deaths have increased with the main causes being drowning, gunshot wounds, getting hit by trains, and topping the list, falling from heights. Earlier this year, a 21-year-old woman drowned in dam water when she and her friends took selfies from a stranded rock in a river in New Zealand. And in March, two teenage boys fell from their death fell to their death after taking photos on top of a cliff in the UK. And a few months after that, a man in India was killed by an oncoming train as he and a friend posed for a selfie on the tracks. So, so there, there's an extreme form of this, and there's a pathological need for attention that drives some of us to do crazy things, even risk, risk our lives. But 
On the other hand, I want to say there is a healthy form of attention seeking that I think we all do and that we all ought to do. Uh, you know, there's some people who say, well, it shouldn't matter what other people see, what, what, you know, if other people see what you do. You should just be yourself or do, just do you, as, as some people say. But I think when they say that, they actually don't understand what it means to be human. Because part of being human is needing to be seen, needing to be known, needing to be understood, needing to be noticed, needing to have someone who understands who you are and where you're coming from. I mean, imagine finding yourself at a place in life where no one remembered you, no one cared what was going on with you, where no one noticed you, where no one missed you, where no one was listening to you and no one understood you. Maybe some of you have been at places in life where you feel like that. But when you're there, it's a feeling, it's a place that I think essentially approximates what hell is when no one can hear you scream. But so it's not reasonable to say to people, well, you know, it shouldn't matter if anyone's paying attention to you. You should just live for yourself, just do what you want to do. And so long as you're happy with you, you can be happy. Uh, you know, and there are positive forms of attention seeking that we all can participate in. You know, wanting to show your teacher or your professor that you've done good work, wanting to show your boss or your supervisor that you're up to date on your projects, uh, having a social life, having friends who ask you how you're doing, who will listen to you and listen to you talk about the ups and downs of your life and offer you support, and probably most essentially having family, having family who cares about you, who keeps up with you, who, who is aware of what's going on with your life and who is providing, providing you with the attention. See, all of us do need an audience. The Pharisees weren't, aren't unique in that sense. You know, what Jesus is, is criticizing for them is not their desire for an audience. It's, he's criticizing them for the fact that they're seeking the wrong kind of audience. And the other thing Jesus talks about in this passage is rewards. In fact, this whole passage is really about rewards. And I think just as we all need an audience, we all need to have rewards. Look, just look at this four or five times in this passage. He talks about rewards. I'll just read through it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then skipping down, he says, Truly I say to you, those people have already received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving might be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is in heaven will reward you. And then he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, if you pray on the street corners to be noticed by people, you've already received your reward. But if you go into your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who, is, who sees what's in secret, your Father will reward you. So this passage is all about rewards. And that's one of the confusing things in, in the Christian life, I think, because people say, well, isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? Where's the reward? I thought the reward was won by Jesus, and we need to uh, simply accept, or accept that reward and trust in that reward and be satisfied in this reward. What's this competitive thing? How, do, how is our Christian life like the Olympics? We're all fighting for particular awards. Uh, and I what Jesus is saying here is, yes, there are particular rewards. There are rewards that you'll get, rewards you'll get for giving in a certain way. There are rewards 
for praying in a certain way. And those are rewards that you should seek and that you should be uh, looking for. And, and I think what he's saying is there are appropriate rewards and inappropriate rewards. If you pray in a certain way so that you'll impress people with the depth of your spirituality and your intellect and your articulateness, you're kind of missing the point of prayer, right? And if you give generously so that other people will be impressed with your generosity and your wealth and, and your charity, you'll, you, you might have the reward of people's attention, but that's not the kind of award you should be seeking when you choose to give generously because praying is not about impressing people. Giving shouldn't be about impressing people. Um, th there are other things that, that these things are, are there for. Uh, you know, and I think this is one of the things that the world sees clearly when people criticize religious people like me is, well, everything they do is done for people to see. And, you know, these people are religious and trying to impress us with their religiosity, but we're, we're just not really impressed by that. Uh, and sometimes we do these things almost out of a sense of pride or, or to, to impress other people. But I think a, a, a perspective on what Jesus is getting at is that, is that there are proper rewards for different, there are proper rewards or the real reward you're looking for, and then there's improper rewards. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but they are that activity itself in consummation. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to use this illustration, which I think makes this self-evident. If you fall in love with somebody, or, or you know somebody loves you and say, well, this is great, this person loves me and I can't wait to uh, get my hands on all their money, you would say, well, there, there's something pathological going on there. You know, <laughs> the, the proper reward of love is not, not separating people from, from their money. But if you say, well, this person loves me and I can't wait to marry them, you'd say, well, that's kind of the point. You know, the, the, the proper reward of an activity is the activity itself in its consummation. And so the proper reward of praying is not that other people will be impressed by what a prayer warrior you are, but the proper reward of praying for us is a connection with God, seeing God work through our prayers and seeing God's hand on our life and, and seeing God's hand on those people who, who we're praying for and, and concerned about. And same way, the proper reward of giving is not that we impress other people with our charity or our generosity or our wealth or things like that, but that we see how we're being used by God to do God's work to relieve pain and sorrow in this world, to discover the adage that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. That's the proper reward of giving, and even to give sacrificially and to be reminded that well, Jesus sacrificed himself for me so, so I can be sacrificial in my giving towards others. Uh, and so when Jesus talks about rewards, he's saying, remember, there is a reward for praying, and you ought to seek that by going into your room, closing the door, and praying to your Father who's unseen, and then that Father will reward you. And, and do your giving in secret so that nobody actually knows about your generosity, then you'll have the true, you'll, you'll have the true benefit or the true reward of being used by God to bless other people. And so we all need those rewards, just like we all need audiences. 
We all need an audience, but we have to have the right audience. We all need rewards, but we have to have the right reward. Now, there's an amazing promise here, too. He says it, he reiterates it twice, just so you get the point, that you have a father who sees what is done in secret, and he will reward you. And Jesus says that twice in verse 4 and verse 6. Then your father who sees what is in secret will reward you. The promise is that when we do things for an audience of one, when we do things for God, God always does see. God always does reward us for those things. You know, our exhibitionism, our desire to be, to have a social media presence or to have everyone pay attention to it, some, sometimes that comes from a sense that, well, if I don't have an audience, if no one's looking at me, if no one knows what I've done or how I've done it, then it just won't matter. And, uh, but, but the life of faith, part of what it means to know God as your Father in heaven is to know that what you do in private, what you do alone, what you do that no one else knows about still matters because God sees it. Uh, you know, the greatest damage, probably the greatest damage that can happen to anyone in life, I think, is to be, is to be rejected or ignored by their parents. You know, I used to work with youth, and sometimes you'd meet these troubled students who had been abandoned by parents, who were ignored by their parents, who didn't know certain some of their parents, and, and it was always this intractable problem. It came out in all these behavioral issues and emotional issues, but you realize the problem wasn't the behavior, the problem wasn't the emotional issues, the problem wasn't these other things. The problem was this was a, a young man who didn't know his father. This was uh, a young person who didn't know their mother, whose mother was unavailable to them, and, and it's just hard to get over. And I remember working with youth like that, thinking, well, this is really an issue for youth, but then as as I grew up, as I came of age, and as I started working not just with teenagers or 20-somethings, but with 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone whose parents have been dead for decades, but then they talk about the dissonance they're dealing with, they talk about their unhappiness, they talk about their struggle, and then it goes back to, well, you gotta understand, I never knew my father, or my father left us when I was five. And, and here they are, they're adults, they're fathers or mothers themselves, and they're still struggling with the sense that they've been abandoned by their parents, been abandoned by their, by their family. And, you know, that causes a wound that does not heal itself because we all need an audience. Most important audience are the people closest to us. So, but I think the path to healing, the path for a healing dynamic in these things is when we begin to understand the truth of this verse, then your father who sees you in secret, sees everything, he will reward you. And that's when the healing dynamic starts to happen in our lives and when we can begin to be rebuilt as whole selves. Uh, I think one of the most therapeutic passages to read is for me in this regard is Psalm 139. The first couple verses of Psalm 139 might be familiar to some of you. There it is. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. And the remarkable thing is the psalmist is saying, God, you know all about me. 
and I can come to you. You know all the drama in my life. You know all the trauma in my life. You know all of my struggles. You know all my failures. And yet, and yet with you, I'm totally safe. I'm totally exposed, yet totally safe. I'm totally vulnerable, and yet totally protected at the same time. And to begin to understand what it means to be known by God, that God sees you, that God is aware of you, that God is watching out for you, and that God has his hands on you, is the beginning is the beginning of a restoration from the brokenness of our, our relationships, to live life in the presence of God and to be performing in our lives for an audience of one. But like I say, this isn't something that happens naturally. This isn't something that happens intellectually. You can't really talk yourself into this. It's something that has to happen existentially and spiritually to us. Galatians 4, 6 points us in this direction. If you could pop that up there, Alan. It says, because you are... God's sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And you know what he's saying there is, there's a supernatural heart surgery, a supernatural renewal that comes in as we begin to grow in our understanding of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to know that there's a God who sees what's done in secret and he will reward you and he sees your struggles and he sees your worries and he hears your prayers and he hears... He, he, he feels your anxiety, and he will reward you, and he is with you. And that, that's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not intellectual. It's something that happens at our heart level. This is the promise that God gives to his children, and it changes everything. When you know that God knows you, when you know that God sees you, uh, your personal life, your social life, your private life, your public life, God sees these things. God knows these things. And and, and that's a place where we can begin to find the peace, the rest, and the attention that we're all looking for. Uh, you know, uh, one of the ways the old Christians used to put this is we live all of our life in the presence of God, or we live all of our life quorum Dio. And it means that, and that can be, that ought to be the animating principle of the presence of, of the Christian life, is that we're not performing for people, we're not trying to impress our neighbors with how religious or how righteous we are. What we're ultimately trying to do is do what God our Father wants us to do, do what will earn us a reward from our Father in heaven. You know, a, a popular definition of integrity has been over the years this idea of your integrity is who you are when nobody's watching you. You know, what do you do when you can get away with anything because nobody, nobody sees you? You know, that, that's essentially your, your integrity. You know, we all drive 55 when we see a speed trap, but, but what about the rest of the time? Uh, and uh, to me, as I've thought about that and worked through this, I, that's something that doesn't really work. Because really, if nobody's looking, do whatever you want. Who really cares? Who really knows? But what this doctrine shows us, what Jesus shows us here is there's a sense in which in our lives, someone is always watching us. Someone is always looking at us. Someone always sees us. We're always in the presence of God. And the promise of the Christian life is that it's lived under the gaze of God. And what really matters is not what your friends or neighbors or church people or the pastor thinks of you, but what does God think of you? God sees you. God knows you. 
and that's who we're performing for. One little example of this, one little application of this, is it goes to, to the way we conduct ourselves at work. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking to uh, the Christians there, and he says he's giving just, just guidelines for how they should function in life, and he, he talks about working, and he says, Obey your earthly master in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And the idea there is that part of what it means to work in the presence of God, to work to, uh, to pursue a Christian vocation, is that you're not just doing your best when you're being watched. You know, it's like, oh, the boss is here, everyone look, look busy. But <laughs> none of you have ever done that. But <laughs> all right, turn off your Facebook. <laughs> uh, but but, but we're always working as if God is watching us. We're always functioning in our life as if God is watching us. And that is the freedom and the peace. Your Father who sees what is done in heaven will reward you. But it's also, maybe some of you are feeling this a little bit now. I certainly feel this. It's also a little bit scary. You mean God is always watching me? God knows all about me? God sees me when I'm sleeping? He knows when I'm awake, you know? He already knows if I've been bad or good. It's, uh, it you know, makes me wonder about my own life. It says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, you know, and so you should pray in secret. But that, you know what that made me think? Well, my prayers aren't that great. I haven't prayed many award-winning prayers lately. And in fact, I've skipped a few prayer times, you know, and, and it's kind of embarrassing sometimes for me as a pastor that, that I don't pray the way I ought to. And, uh, you know, your father... God in heaven sees your giving when it's done in secret, and he'll reward you for that, too. And I'm like, well, what if, what if when my giving's not that generous, when I don't have anything to give, or I don't want to give because i got other things that I want? And uh, will I be rewarded then? You know, if God is always watching me, then I'm cooked. Have you ever felt that way? Or maybe you're feeling that way right now. He sees what's done in secret, then I'm in trouble. Uh, you know, if we... He says, well, if, if, if we pray, we've got to pray really well in private, and then we'll have this reward. You know, if I pray eloquently enough and spiritually enough and honestly enough and passionately enough and consistently <laughs> enough, then God will reward, me, reward us. But what about when we don't pray eloquently and spiritually and passionately and consistently? What hope is there for us? And, you know, if I give enough, God will reward me. But what if I'm not really generous and not... Not uh, sacrificial and don't give abundantly. What hope is, is there for us then? You know, so I, you wonder when you're, the way this is read, Jesus is kind of being presumptuous. You know, God sees you and so he will reward you so you don't have anything to worry about. But I think about it and I say, I got a lot to worry about if God actually sees me, you know? And uh, the problem is with the Christian life, and I think no matter how hard you try, it means, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you pray, there's a sense in which you'll feel like it's never really enough. You know, you always could have given more. You always could have done more. And, and you know, here's the, the fact of the matter is the more generously you're oriented, the more you'll feel like, you know, real, I really should or ought or could do more. The more uh, you pray, the more you'll sense that, you know, I really should pray more. I really could pray more. I, um, and, you know, the more 
it's the irony of the Christian life in a sense that the further you go in it, the more aware you are of how far you have to go, how, how, how large the chasm is between where you ought to be and where you are right at this moment. But to be a child of God, the essence of the Christian life comes to this. It's not my effort. It's not my gifts. It's not my sacrifice. And it's not my spirituality ultimately that earns me God's favor and earns me God's presence. Because God saw our plight. He saw that there were, we didn't have what it takes. We couldn't give what it takes to be restored to him. And we couldn't, we, we couldn't pray well enough to connect to him. And so he came down to us. He sent his only begotten son to redeem us. His, his son came to claim us, came to conquer our enemies through, through, through the resurrection from the dead, came to pay for our sins through his death on the cross. And, you know, when Jesus was on that mission, one of the things that God said to him, as Jesus is about to step out on his mission, God said to him, you are my beloved son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. God the Father said that to his son. You are my beloved son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. But then Jesus came along and he claimed you and me as his brothers and as his sisters. And he said, well, if that's the way God treats his children, what if I adopt all of these as my, as my siblings? And that's what Jesus did. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. And that's the essence of the Christian life, is that Jesus is willing to be united with us. Jesus is willing to connect with us. Jesus is willing to identify himself as your brother. He's willing to identify you as his brother and as his sister. And ultimately, that's the place where we experience God's reward in our life. You know, when we go to pray and we realize our prayers aren't breaking through the ceiling today because we just aren't feeling it and the spirit isn't moving, we're reminded that before the throne of God above, we have a great high priest who ever lives and pleads for me. When we go to give and we just can't bring ourselves because we really want this thing and we're really feeling insecure about money right now so we can't give sacrificially and and we feel bad about our failure to to follow through on what we know is right with the generosity of what he's entrusted to us and or we do give but we realize it's much less than we ought to then we're reminded and renewed by the hope that our hope before god is not based on what we've given to god it's based on what God has given to us. And so the reward of our prayers is being reminded and renewed in the sufficiency of the prayers of Jesus for us. The reward of our efforts to give are being reminded and renewed of the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And ultimately, the hope that we have is the Father who sees what is done in secret. He looks at you and he says, you are my child and I love you with you. I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of your children who are here today that you would make this real to each one of us. 
move us to understand again the, the sufficiency of the work of Christ, to trust in him and to be changed by him and to live our lives with the assurance that you see us, you know us, our lives are open before you and you love us and will provide for us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.